Good morning to all here and also on live stream. We just have a reminder for the sing song that's afterwards, and you're welcome also to follow on live stream. We have here leading our services this morning is student Chiba DeYoung. He's a member from the Dunville United Reformed Church. He's in his third year of the Canadian Reformed Theological College in Hamilton. Please join me into the call to worship from Psalm 98. O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Please stand. As the people of God, it is our confession that we are helpless in ourselves and we need a help outside of ourselves. So we confess that our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Let's pray for God's blessing as we begin this worship service. Our Father, we pray that grace and peace will be ours from you, our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that as our Father, you have called us here to worship you. We thank you, Father, that on this day we still have the opportunity to worship you. Father, we thank you for the ability to worship, that because of the work of your Son, because of the love that you showed us in him, we are able to come before you in robes whiter than snow, the robes of his perfect righteousness, claiming the right to call you Father. Father, we thank and praise you for the gift that you have given us in Jesus Christ. Father, as we come to your word, as we look at your word, both the promise and at the fulfillment that you supplied, May our hearts be warmed by the love that Christ has for us, his sheep. May our spirits be enlivened to worship you for the grace that you have displayed to us in Christ. May we see once again that you are worthy of all praise. And may we be moved to praise you with our whole lives. Father, as we open your word, as your word is also opened across this country and across the globe, we pray that you will send your life-giving spirit. May that same spirit that powerfully caused the creation of the world and the conception of Christ also make our hearts alive. Father, bless us, we pray. Strengthen us and glorify your name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 7, where we see one of the most familiar prophecies, one of the most glorious prophecies, given in a time of abject darkness. In the days of Ahaz, that's one of the kings of the southern kingdom of Judah. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Assyria, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, 
but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David, that, that is when, when the king and his sons were told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, Oh, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. This is in the outlying regions around Jerusalem. And say to him, Be careful, be quiet. Do not fear and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabiel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, thus says the Lord Yahweh. It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. So now God, through Isaiah, offers the king of Judah a sign to shore up, to strengthen his faith. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign. He commands Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And he, that is Isaiah, he said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, that that is in, in, in two or three years, he's saying, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria, and they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on all the thorn brushes and on all the pastures. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. In that day, and this is a picture of the total devastation that that the Lord will bring upon Israel and Syria. In that day, a, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, so a very small herd, and because of the abundance of milk that they give, He will eat curds, for everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. 
Let's stand to sing again. Now from, uh, from, from hymn 19, a versification of Isaiah chapter 9, where the one named Emmanuel is depicted as a light to both those inside and outside of the covenant community, carrying out what was promised to David, reigning on David's throne forever. And indeed, our scripture text for this morning will be the record of the fulfillment of one of those promises that God gave to great King David. We'll be reading as our text from Matthew chapter 1, focusing especially on verses 18 through 25. Matthew chapter 1, we'll start reading at verse 1. This is the word of God. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eliezer. And Eliezer, the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now for the words of our text. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. 
she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. So far the reading from God's word. May God add his blessing to his word as it is proclaimed. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ. Our text this morning, Matthew 1, because of its association with the Christmas season, the most faithfully, or at least the most widely observed holiday in North America, it's one of the more familiar texts of Scripture. But despite its familiarity, even to people outside of the church, there is a great deal within this text that often goes overlooked. So to help us better understand the birth of Christ, to, to, to equip us to, for, for greater praise of the one whose coming we celebrate today, I'll be bringing God's word to you this morning under this theme. Behold the coming of Jesus, the long-awaited promised Messiah. Behold the coming of Jesus, the long-awaited promised Messiah. We'll begin in the first point by, by seeing Jesus in verse 16, the creator of created. Then in verses 19 through 20, we'll see Jesus, the Savior, Son of David. Then in the final point, we'll see what verses 22 through 25 display to us. Jesus, our God, who is truly with us. So Matthew's gospel, as as you may know if you're familiar with the gospels, Matthew's gospel, more than any of the other gospels, is just filled with references back to the Old Testament. And this first chapter is no exception. Verse 1, the very first verse of our New Testament, makes a direct reference back to the very first book of the Old Testament. Uh, Then we have that reference echoed for us again in in verse 18, the first verse of our text. Verse 1 of this chapter begins with these words, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. That phrase, the book of the genealogy, actually occurs in only two other places in the Bible. In Genesis 2, verse 4 and 5, verse 1, where Moses, under the inspiration of the very same spirit that inspired Matthew to write, Moses writes that uh, Moses writes of the book of the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in Genesis 2, verse 4, and the book of the generations of Adam in 5, verse 1. The Greek is literally biblos geneseos, both in, both in Genesis and in Matthew. And the Hebrew from which this phrase in the Greek comes is also used, is also used to describe the generations of, of Noah, Abram, Isaac, Ishmael, Esau, Jacob, and Moses. Now, there's something important here. Uh, by using this precise phrase, Matthew is signaling something important to his readers. He's signaling that something is happening here in this text that is very similar to what happened back in the book of Genesis, back in the Old Testament. But at the same time, there is something happening here that's going to shine so much more brightly than any of those Old Testament comparisons. Matthew's making two things clear here. First, God is working out something new. 
a birth more miraculous than any of those other miraculous births in the Old Testament. He's beginning a new creation. But at the same time, he's making a clear link back to Israel's history. But even beyond those two things, there's a clear link to the pattern that we see unfolding in Genesis, a pattern that points to God's special care for his covenant people and for the line of the Messiah, impossible births by the power of God. See, just as Isaac was given to two parents beyond any reasonable hope of childbearing, just as Jacob and Esau were given to Isaac and Rebekah through the miraculous intervention of the Lord, so this also would be a birth resulting from a specific miraculous intervention by God. But there is something that goes way beyond any of those Old Testament types and shadows. Those were miraculous births. The conception and birth of Jesus were, were miraculous But this conception and birth that Matthew describes for us goes so far beyond any of those. In every one of those Old Testament examples, while divine intervention was needed, the mechanism for conception remains the same. In all those examples in Genesis, you still have a man and you have a woman. You have the seed being sown in infertile ground, so to speak, but both the seed and the ground are still present. But here you've got ground, so to speak, a womb, but no seed. So this miraculous birth, while similar in other ways to those other miraculous conceptions and births in the Old Testament, goes way beyond them and is actually best reflected not in those miraculous births, but rather in God's creative acts in the very first week, as recorded in Genesis 1. There we have God speaking, God willing, sprouting plants from a seedless ground, causing seas to swarm with fish, commanding the earth to to bring forth living creatures of all kind, and finally, forming man from the dust of the ground. In all of those examples, you have a thing being brought forth without the use of natural seed. You have miraculous creative acts of God. And here in our text, in verse 18, we've got the exact same thing. We've got a son without a seed, a child without the help of a human father. Rather, just as the creation was brought forth through the Spirit, as we have, recorded, as we have it recorded for us in Psalm 104 and Genesis 1 verse 2, we have our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ being conceived, being given life by the activity of the Holy Spirit. In this act, what we have recorded for us in verse 18, in this act, we have the Creator becoming creation. And this could not happen without the work of the Holy Spirit. John 1 verse 3 tells us that without Christ, nothing that exists was made. So here we have the creator of all things entering into, even becoming subject to his creation. Colossians 1.16 tells us that by Christ were all things created in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible. All things were created by him through him and for him. And yet, here, Matthew records for us that this one, this one for whom all things were created, this one becomes part of that very creation that was formed to serve and glorify him. And this is the amazing thing that Matthew is drawing our attention to. There is a new act of creation that is happening here. The creator, though though being true and eternal God, is entering into his creation. He's taking on himself the form of true humanity, becoming a true human, a a, a blastocyst, a, a fetus, reliant on a mother for everything. 
He, the God-man, is, is floating, as all unborn babies do, in amniotic fluid. He's having, he's having, he's having eyes, a, a heart, liver, and kidneys formed for him, being given a true human body in nature like ours in every way. It's the very same thing that Paul points out to us in Philippians 2, verses 6 and 7. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be tenaciously held onto or, or grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Luke records the message that the angel Gabriel gives to Mary, indicating how this is all going to take place. But Matthew here in this passage does us no such favors. Rather, he simply tells us what happened. That Mary is with child from the Holy Spirit. And then he reveals to us what the immediate result of this miraculous conception was. And this draws us into the story that Matthew lays out for us. The story of Mary's betrothed, a man named Joseph. And this brings us to our second point. Here we see Jesus, not just the creator entering into his creation, but a son from a specific line, coming in fulfillment of divine decree and promise. We see Jesus, the Savior Son of David. So Mary, verse 18, is found to be with child. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, has to figure out how he's going to respond to this unexpected turn of events. According to the law and custom of the time, he had two options. Either he could drag her into court, resulting in her public humiliation, or he could write her up a certificate of divorce, sparing her that humiliation of a public trial, but still upholding the high standards of the law. Unwilling to put her to shame, our text tells us, he resolved to divorce her quietly. Joseph opts for, for what seems like the merciful option, while sticking to his sense of justice. He picks the quieter of the two options for, uh, uh, for Mary, showing himself to be, like David, his ancestor, a, a just or a righteous man. A man demonstrating uh, to all those watching the character of the God who he served, insisting on both justice and on mercy. So he resolves in his heart to divorce her discreetly, quietly. But as he considers these things, while he's, while he's mulling these things over in his mind, meditating on the law of God and meditating on the love that he owes his betrothed, God provides the answer that he needs. Behold, an angel appeared to him in a dream. Joseph falls asleep with these weighty matters on his mind. And God sends one of his messengers to him in a dream. Just as the angel Gabriel, as we have it recorded in Luke, just as the angel Gabriel had appeared to Mary, so now another angel appears to Joseph, bringing to him a message from God, revealing to him a command, an explanation, and a prophecy. But before we look at those three, the, the, the command, the explanation, and the prophecy, take a look at how the angel addresses Joseph. He begins his address, Joseph, son of David. Now that phrase, son of David, it occurs 14 times in the New Testament. 13 times it refers to Christ once. Here, it refers to Joseph. And this is actually a great deal more important than it might at first glance seem. See, as both Matthew and Luke make, 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 make clear in their genealogies, it was Joseph and not Mary that was a descendant of the great King David. Therefore, Jesus' title, Son of David, was dependent on Joseph taking Jesus as his adoptive son and thereby passing on the rights of legal sonship and that title, Son of David, to him. 
And this is critically important. What Joseph does here in in obedience to God's command is critically important. As author Russell Moore has put it, if Joseph is not really the father of Jesus, you and I are going to hell. Jesus' identity as the Christ, as the Messiah, after all, is tied to his identity as the descendant of David, the legitimate heir of David's throne. And so the message that the angel gives to Joseph is of critical importance. Salvation hangs in the balance here. There is no savior son of David if Joseph does not do as the angel tells him. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, the angel commands him. Joseph, your fears are unfounded. Mary has not been unfaithful. Mary has not been unfaithful. There is more going on here than you could possibly guess. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Then having given Joseph that command to take Mary as his wife and the explanation that the son in her womb is the product of the Holy Spirit's work, the angel reveals to him what will come to pass in the life of this miracle child. She will have a son, says the angel, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Look carefully at what the angel is saying here. Step one, she will bear a son. Step two, you shall call his name Jesus. The angel is making it absolutely clear that this child will be an adoptive son to Joseph. That though Joseph is not, was not involved in the conception, he will take on that responsibility of father. He will be tasked with, with naming the child, becoming a true father to him, and expecting from him submission. And by naming him and making him his firstborn son and heir, Joseph is legally placing him in the position of the son of David. So Joseph is being used by God to bring about a fulfillment of God's promise to David. So long ago in 2 Samuel 7, when he said to that king, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Your throne will be established forever. But of course, there's a significance to that name that the angel tells Joseph to to give to Mary's son. He is to call him Jesus For he will save his people from their sins. Through Jesus, the the salvation promised back in the Old Testament in places like Psalm 130, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities, those promises are going to be fulfilled. He'll be given his name, common in its context, but nevertheless full of deep, rich theological import. Joseph and Mary were to call this son Jesus, as our catechism, making direct connection with this passage, says... Because he saves us from all our sins. And because salvation is not to be sought or found in anyone else. Through this son, through this son, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, adopted by Joseph as great David's greater son, the people of God, his elect from all corners of the earth, will be brought to salvation. But there's more than just that. Jesus didn't just come to bring us salvation. Jesus came to to reconcile us to God. To bring us to God, to bring God to us. To be God with us. And so we come to our third and final point. Jesus, God is truly with us. In Matthew, 
writing this gospel, he, he pulls us back from the unfolding narrative. Uh, narrative. He, he leaves Joseph sleeping in his bed so that we, as, as the reader, can, can gain an even deeper perspective on the coming of Jesus, that, that long-awaited coming Messiah. Not only was this son of, David to, uh, son of Mary to be David's heir and, and savior of his people, but as promised to another one of David's descendants and Jesus' great-grandfathers, he was to be Emmanuel, the God who is with us. If you look in your Bibles to uh, uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 9, you'll see a name there that kind of sneaks in there between Jotham and Hezekiah. This king, about six centuries before the birth of Christ, was faced with a major crisis. Uh, There was a rising power in the Middle East, the nation of Assyria. And Israel and Syria, two kingdoms in Judah's north, they they ally together to meet this rising threat. And and they invite Ahaz and the nation of Judah to join. But Ahaz is, is too scared to even consider it. So they decide to invade Judah, establish their own king, and force that nation to go along with their plan. Now Ahaz, more scared than ever, he decides not to go to the Lord his God for help, but rather he enlists the help of the king of Assyria. And it's in the midst of all this international struggle that this prophecy, one of the most known prophecies in the Bible, was given to God's people. It was a message of God-given hope to people whose hope had been lost. Judah was a minor power, a tiny nation on the international stage. And their king was a weakling and a coward. But their God was still faithful. God sent his prophet Isaiah to Ahaz to to strengthen his faith. Isaiah told the king to, to ask for a sign, for any sign, from as high as heaven to as low as Sheol, anything at all. But the king in rather pious-sounding platitudes, he refuses to obey God and ask for a sign. So Isaiah turns from the king of Judah and turns to the people of Judah and says to them, Hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. And the you here is plural. It's not singular. He's not just talking to Ahaz. He's talking to all of God's covenant people. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. God will be with his people, whether Ahaz will call on him in faith or not. But that child that Isaiah is prophesying about is not just a sign that God will be with his people, but rather the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy, being Christ, actually is God with his people. God taking on the flesh and the blood of his people. God taking on Israeli DNA. God God being born of a virgin from among his people. God being adopted into a royal family, into the very house of David that had refused him in the days of Ahaz. And this one, Emmanuel, who is both the sign of God's presence with his people and God himself with his people, both the sign and the thing being signified, this is the one who comes to Mary. This is the one who was born of the virgin wife of this man, Joseph. This one, Emmanuel, is the one who is taken as son and raised as son by Joseph, as Joseph faithfully takes Mary as his wife in obedience to that divine command and also names the boy Jesus. 
See the wonderful providence of God at work here. This son of David, Joseph, this just man of royal lineage is prepared by God. He has his lineage prepared and defended through faithful and unfaithful generations. He is prepared by God to be adoptive father to God incarnate, to raise him, to instruct him, to lead him, to protect him. And at the same time, beloved in Jesus Christ, see the, the abundant, amazing grace of God here. As the second person of the Trinity, God himself, for us and for our salvation, as the Nicene Creed puts it, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and became incarnate, took on flesh by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. He subjected himself to incarnation, to being born, to being raised by sinners, to being instructed by parents that he himself had created, coming under their authority, requiring their protection as he matured from baby to boy to man. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, behold your Messiah, the creator second person of the Trinity, entering into and submitting himself to his creation, the Son of God himself, the very King of the universe, being taken in as adopted son by a man of long-abandoned royal lineage. Yahweh God, the Savior of his people, becoming one of those people, knowing that there was no other way to save those whom he loved. Emmanuel, God with us, God made flesh, God with us always even as he promised, God with us always to the very end of the age, through persecution, through famine, through hardship, and beloved in Christ, through lockdowns, shutdowns, and pandemics too. God who with, with respect to his divinity, majesty, grace, and spirit is never absent from us. Even as he, at the end of Matthew's gospel, promises, I am with you always, even to the end of time. Amen. Our Father, as we close this worship service, we pray that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, your love, O Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit will be with us all. In Jesus' name, amen.